will be this morning. We've been working through the story uh, of Jesus in Matthew, walking through that, and as we get ready to start, as we're starting 2022, the first week I just wanted to remind everybody that you and I have a lot to celebrate. We have a lot to celebrate. And when we get our eyes off of those things, the problems of this world, the things that are going on, uh, the news that we're watching, all this other stuff can overtake. And so we need, we need a strong reset. We need to bring into subjection our emotions into the truths that you and I live by. We need to remember that we have much to celebrate. We are looking at the story of an honest Jesus that lived a real life. And so when you and I watch the life that he lived, when we watch the things, when we listen to the things that he teaches, um, we don't serve a God that is aloof or far off. Okay, that's what makes him our perfect high priest. It wasn't that he was not perfect, then he was made perfect in the context of him as a person or him in purity. He was always perfect. The context is this. You and I cannot look at him ever through all of eternity and ever whisper, you don't understand what it was like. That's why Hebrews calls him our perfect high priest. He came, he lived this life, everything you and I experienced, he experienced. And so in that knowledge, we have a perfect high priest. And at the throne of God right now even in this moment Romans would say he intercedes for us he prays for us and his prayers get answered so we serve this Jesus we honor this Christ he lived a real life he lived in a real world everything that touches you and I touches him or touched him we looked later when he goes to interact with the story of John the Baptist when he goes to interact with the character of John you and I have the opportunity to have a good name. Have the opportunity to be a good man or a good woman. That last song that we just sang, right, like you can't go back to the beginning and start over, and that is just fine. The Lord can make you something special right now. No matter what yesterday holds for you, God can clean you up. He can make you new. He can set you on a path. He can make you an example. He can make you something special. He can make you a help. He can make you a hope for someone else. You and I need to understand that God's forgiveness and His grace far outweigh anything we've ever done. Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church. And he ended his life as Paul the Apostle. And so if the Lord can take him that far, what can He do with you? What can He do with me? You have the opportunity of a good name. You have the opportunity to become a good man or a good woman because we serve a great God. You and I know that horizontally we're not good people, and I hate qualifying this every time. We understand that. But listen, horizontally, from person to person, our lives can be different. They can look more like Jesus tomorrow than they do today. And in that, you and I create a testimony that looks good. The problem with that as a Christian is the longer you and I live as Christians, we realize that inside of us, that dirtiness just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So the closer we get to God, the holier He is and the dirtier we are. But from the outside looking in, it looks like you and I are something to navigate toward. And there's nothing wrong with that. Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Nothing wrong with that for you and I to look and think, I want people to follow my life, not for my edification or my glorification, but because how God has blessed. 
what he does and how he works and what they can experience. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. John was a picture of fire and light, of passion and truth. You and I can be pictures like that. The last thing you and I need in our Christian life is to be ho-hum Eeyores. If what we teach and preach and read is true, nobody, nobody in this world should be more joy-filled than you and I. We served the Lord of the Sabbath last week, a Jesus that beckons us to come. We talked about his call, his title, right? His call is what? Come. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest in a culture that's totally busy and totally chaotic. I can't think of a better call than that one. Jesus says to come, take my yoke. It's easy and light. He beckons us to come. He shows then his title as Lord of the Sabbath. He heals the man on the Sabbath as his proof. This is who I say I am. This is the proof to back it up. And finally, the exposition of the Pharisees' hearts comes about in that passage. Why? Because they would rather watch a person suffer than to break one of their laws that they claim to be God's law. And so they would watch a man suffer and sit there. Their hearts were broken and darkened. And Jesus exposes that in that glorious passage. Matthew chapter 13 is where we'll be today. We're going to read through one of the parables that has bent my mind for years. And I'm going to walk you through kind of where I've landed and and how I've tried to make sense of what the Lord is teaching. I can guarantee you I'm not 100% right. But you have to struggle with the same scripture that I do. So we see one of the greatest pieces of our Christian uh, thought, our Christian pieces in, in the idea of eternal security or the idea of once a person is a child of God, you cannot lose that salvation. That's one of the things that we hold to here. It's in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, It's one of the strongest pieces about being uh, bought into or brought into God's family in all three ways that you can legally do that. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, As a Christian, you have been blood-bought. You've been born into the blood of Christ. That's salvation. You and I were brought into the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus. We've been adopted as families. There's families around here right now that are putting together testimonies that are just amazing. And what is part of that testimony is adoption. So you and I have been adopted into the family of God. And finally, through marriage. Jesus looks at the church and he calls it his bride. And so all three ways that you and I can legally be a part of a family, even in the culture we live in today, God has made that so in his word, the blood of Christ, adoption by God the Father, and married to Jesus together as his bride. This is a glorious, glorious truth. And yet it's been perverted so bad, uh, chipped at so bad by people that have made profession of faith but never lived according to what it would be to be a Christian. You know, maybe the idea is they're 35 now and they cling to the idea that someone drugged them to the altar when they were little and they prayed a prayer and it was done. And they got their get out of hell free card and anytime their life is brought up that it doesn't match scripture, that's what they whip out. Boom, Christian. Got the card. Right? I'm good to go. And that is a faulty view of what God calls uh, us to. It's a faulty view even of the Great Commission. 
You know, the end of that, we, we tend to forget. Like, we like the idea of going. People love to talk about missionaries. We love the idea of baptism. But it's the last part that we just kind of lose. Teach them all things I have commanded. Like, the Great Commission is a big deal. It is the actual mission statement of the church. And if you dissect it or pull it apart, you've harmed it all. Jesus starts with, all authority on heaven has been given to me. He ends with, I will be with you. So the person that has the authority is with us. Everything else in the middle, he is with us through all of that. Go, preach, baptize, teach them to obey. It's that last part that so many people have missed. Either evangelists in all their zeal running around uh, uh, lighting all these religious fires and leaving people that are baby Christians not to be grown up in a church, not surrounded by people that can love and help them, whether it's that end or it's just churches that are lazy and don't want to deal with making disciples. They would rather have a huge Sunday morning number and talk about how many thousands of people or hundreds of people they serve instead of how many people are actually becoming more like Jesus. That's the dirty work of community. That's the grimy stuff of phone calls and loving people and being a part of their life. That's the part of begging people to be a part of the church, to actually be a part of it. Come here and get what this has to offer. And so we're going to see all those things today. And I believe Jesus lays them out in the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13 says this, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along, the, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me ask you something, friend. What's your actual calling in life? I think Scripture, I was thinking about this this morning as I was preparing for this morning, and I think Scripture could maybe boil us all three down, uh, all of us down into three callings. You have three. You're a farmer, you're a shepherd, and you're a warrior. And I think most of what Scripture has to tell us can be...
How we doing? Better? All right, we're going to deal with that. Y'all ready? Listen, I was worried about looking stupid this morning because I had to steal my wife's Bible. <laughs> Instead, I didn't change my own batteries, and now I'm walking around with a tail on the backside and a cord on the front. Now, you get all the laughter out now, and then you can start paying attention again, right? That's what we do with kids. Get the crazy stuff out of the way, reel it back in. Here we go. Y'all ready? They would have laughed at the sower. You're wasting something that's precious. There's a reason why Jesus pitches this this way with regards to the kingdom. There's no limited supply in what you and I can sow. There's no spots where we either know or can comprehend what's going to happen when we sow the seed there. That's not within our purview. You don't get to act like so-and-so is outside of the gospel. They thought that about Saul. There's no way. right? I believe it's Ananias in the book of Acts, and Jesus tells him, hey, I'm, I need you to go to Saul. He's blinded, waiting for someone to come in and tell him what to do. And Ananias is like, um, are you sure? Like, I've heard stories about that guy. He's, he's a little rough. I'm pretty sure uh, he's not real, a real fan of the church. Yeah, I'm sure. You're going to go and you're going to tell him what he's going to suffer for my kingdom and my name. So you and I don't get the right to figure out where's the best place to sow the seed. All you and I have to do is sow it. And if it falls on the ground, it falls on the ground. If it falls on the walkway, it falls there. If it falls in the thorns, it falls there. If it falls on rocky ground, it falls there. You and I just keep. It's a limitless supply. And we're just better off to keep sowing than we are to try to pick and choose where we're going to put our moments, where we're going to take our time. So you've got the sower, you've got the same seed, but you've got what? You've got four different spots it's going to fall, four different soils it's going to land on. I need you to understand the sower is the same and the seed is the same. You're not going to have 100% success rate. Every seed you sow is not going to hit fertile soil and, and, and create something. That doesn't matter to God. You're not responsible for the results. You are responsible to do what you're called to do. When you mix these two things up, you say, how are so many churches... Um, why are so many churches manipulating the gospel? Why do they not preach certain passages of the word? Because a lot of them feel if they just pitch it a little different, they'll get a better result. Because who do they ultimately think builds the church? It's not Jesus, like he says. It's obviously them or their message. The way you pitch it, the way you explain it, what you exclude from it. The whole idea that there's a prosperity gospel in this entire world drives into this, either personal wealth, I think the more people that listen to me, the more money I'm going to have, or I think I'm going to grow a bigger church by telling people good things are going to come. When you bite into this, when you buy into this, when you bite on this gospel, good things are going to come. He was probably going to get saved. He's going right to the altar. You've robbed him. The polar opposite, we pull kids away from the altar. The idea that you and I can create an outcome with the gospel has led a lot of people down a path that is destructive, wrong, and heretical. Jesus builds the church. 
When you sow this seed, he is the one that brings about the increase. You and I are just responsible to do what it is we're called to do. No more. Not even in your own children can you make this seed take hold. You and I are just called to be faithful. Look down a little ways. Look at verse 18 with me. Jesus explains this parable. Here then the parable of the sower. So he's going to explain it to his disciples in a smaller group. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. For what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus is going to explain this parable to them. He's going to break it down for them. Verse 19, the path is trodden, hard, exposed, and easy prey. And what's going on in that context would be uh, diversions everywhere. Not paying attention to what really is uh, important in life. Not caring about the idea of an eternal soul or judgment or sin or a God that is holy and righteous and good. Not caring about those things. Just diverted totally. There's nothing to grab a hold of. Sin, they have a depraved mind. They have a dead heart, Ephesians chapter 2 would say. And so what happens is, well, that's, that's ground for the enemy. He swoops in and just gobbles that seed right up and moves on. And so this ground that the sower would sow to, do you see how crazy that's it, that is now? Like you, you toss that on the path. It's going to be gobbled up or blown away. It's never going to take root. What are you doing? You take a little bit of that at a time and you put it exactly where it's supposed to go, in the exact spot it's supposed to go. Nope. They're spreading this like salt or floor dry, like Right, you ever done that? Works great. Grab that bag of salt, cut the top open. Had to do it all week. Just sling it everywhere. Wake up the next day and the road's all dry. Beautiful. That's not how you plant seed, though, when you only have a little bit. A little bit, straight down, right there, another step, proper spacing, plenty of ground, plenty of water, plenty of nutrition. Next one. But that's not the picture. And so some fallen on the path. The enemy comes in, the enemy of our souls comes in and gobbles it up. In the world that we live in, I think the easiest one to point to on that is the idea of just so many people are diverted. They don't even care. It's not like later on in the thorny ground where they do care initially. It's that they just don't even care. You and I need to pray for those like that. We need to pray for them. We need to intercede for them. We need to love them. Uh, you and I need to live a life that makes them want to care. You and I need to live a life that they look at and say, something is missing from my life. 
you interact with people at work, this would be the best place to have this happen. Some of you younger ones, you interact at school with people where that this is the best place to have this happen, to set this backdrop to where their life doesn't match yours. And you're not doing that for your own glory. You're trying to show them something is missing. Why is there joy and peace and strength here? Why is there courage here? Why do you treat people this way? Why do you love people like this? And it's not about you. It's about him. God of the universe and King Jesus that has called you into that fellowship, into that relationship. We can set that backdrop to make that ground a little more seed friendly. Verses 20 and 21, the rocky ground sprouts seed quickly but has no roots to hang on with. You know, my heart breaks, not just for the church that we find ourselves in in 2022 broadly, but the leadership, the people that have platforms that claim to speak on behalf of God. Because you know what this passage says? Why do these people fall away? Why do they run? Look at verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. When does he stop enduring? When tribulation or persecution arises on account of what? This did not hit me until preparing to preach to you this morning. And man, when it hit, it was like, wow, that is us right now. What is going to cause the persecution and the tribulation? The Word. The Word of God. What sword does Jesus bring that separates family? The truth. The truth. Listen, friends, we are living in this right now. When you flip on any kind of social media, when you flip on the news, whatever it is, when you hear of any Christian this or any Christian that, I am telling you many of them have been compromised on this point. Many, many, many of them. When the word of God gets tough or hard, they back away. They may not uh, jump out of it completely, but they will not touch this topic or that topic or this topic. Athletes are the worst in this. And you and I understand why. They're not pastors or preachers. But they want to talk about being Christian or they want to talk about being saved. They want to talk about what God has done in certain contexts. And then other ones they won't touch at all. Is Jesus the only way of God? Is the word of God actually what you believe? Is the Bible really what you anchor your life in? You start asking questions like that and their answers change quickly. What causes the turning and the persecution is the word. Because of the word, they fall away. The anchor of God is the word and the truth of God. It's what you and I are hanging on to. Everybody has experiences. Muslims have experiences. Jehovah's Witnesses have experiences. Mormons have experiences. All of these people have, secular people have experiences. You and I are anchored into not our experience. We are anchored into the truths of God's word. And if we tinker with that, one iota, and we tell anybody else about it, we have become a false teacher. We've become a heretic. We're teaching people a false gospel. 
We have to be very careful as ambassadors for Christ that you and I understand when I open my mouth to speak for Him, the Word of God is all that matters. If I turn, if I deviate, that's one way of falling away. The other one would just be, you hear all these deconstruction stories or all these deconversion stories, and a lot of times it has something to do with some hard truth in Scripture. I am thankful every day that at the age of 15, 16, 17, and 18, I had a youth pastor that took the Word of God very serious. And when he opened it up and he taught us, the expectation was we would listen, and the expectation was we were going to dive into deep stuff. He was so good that I wasted a whole year of Bible college because I didn't learn a thing. And I don't mean that to sound prideful. I mean that to say the knowledge is free. Me and a buddy finished our first year at Liberty. I looked over at him. He looked at me. I said, did you learn anything this year? He said, no. Me neither. It was a good review. But we had a youth pastor that would teach us about marriage and divorce and all the other things that were going during the day, abortion. He would teach us about those things, and he would go to the Word of God, and he would open them up. So when these 19-year-olds were having their mind blown because the first person ever explained to them actually what our culture looked like, we were just kind of looking at each other like, okay. Nice review. Jesus' sword works that way in the family. It works that way in the world. And friends, it works that way in the church. It works that way in the church. Most church issues are because someone will not bow to the authority of Scripture. Now, there are real ones that must be taken care of, and sometimes that person is the pastor. It doesn't matter. These issues come about because somebody is disregarding the Word of God. And so there is a falling away. Look at verse 22. As for those, uh, what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see, there's, all much, there's only so much soil and nutrition to go around. And so if you cast that seed in soil that's already taken up, that's why it's always bland and dirt. You don't want anything competing for the nutrition. So you clean the field up and you plant the seed properly. When it goes in places where there are competing uh, uh, plants or complete, uh, competing uh, trees or whatever else, then you're dividing up nutrition, water, sunlight, all of it. What's the competing issues for the Christian life? Man, somebody, the gospel message hits... It's exactly what someone needed to hear. Maybe, and, and many of you that are, are serious about spreading that message, many of you could probably count a dozen times in your life someone's life was, had hit a rough patch. Something bad had happened. Something was going on. And that gospel message seemed to be exactly what they wanted. And then two weeks or two months later, it was gone. One of the reasons why we do membership at Heritage different than we did 12 or 13 years ago was because one of my first months here, we voted in like 12, 15 members of the church. It was amazing. Everybody was rejoicing. We were all happy. And about six months later, there were none of them here. Actually, my grandmother was still here. Like, what, what happened? Well, I got saved, and I want to be a member. Well, come on up, and let's vote them in. Let's get this going, man. Get these rolls going. Now what happens? You're here for a long time. You know all the warts. You know all the history, you know me, you know some other people, you know what you're getting. 
Why? Because seeing that happen, watching the cares of the world choke out the health of our church, not just the individuals, but the health of our church, was being choked out because the cares of the world were robbing people who had had a spiritual experience and then ran off. And we needed more time and determination to shore that up. Cares of the world. What we cultivate is what takes over. The thorns and the care of this world choke out heavenly fruit. What are you and I cultivating right now in our lives that's taking up your time, that's taking up the nutrition of your life, what you have to give, everything you have to give? What are you and I cultivating that's taking that up? As Christians, is it heavenly fruit? Or is it the thorns and the cares of this world? Is it the deceitfulness of riches? Isn't that amazing? I love the verbiage of Scripture. I love just reading it word for word for what it's actually saying. It's not riches. It's not money. It's not taking care of your needs or anyone else's. It's the deceitfulness of riches. Why is that deceitful? Because eventually you and I get to the point where we think we can take care of ourselves. I got this. And then, man, the next day, the humbling happens. To use the soil, you've got to clean it. Those things must be uprooted. Those things must be cleansed and gone. The thorns must go away. They must be taken out. Why? Because they're going to choke out heavenly fruit. The greatest heartbreak I have for the Christian church, especially the one that we live, we live in right now, we've lived in for the last 50 or 60 years, is that most people that claim to be Christian live in soil 2 or soil 3. They are okay until persecution comes. And right now, all it can be is somebody hurting your name on social media. Or they live in soil three. They come randomly and they give God some scraps or whatever else, or they had that experience then and have since fallen away and just continue to use the name of being a Christian. Why? Because it feels good and it makes them feel better about themselves whenever they want to. Or they can just hop right out of that camp into the world camp and just do what needs to be done there too. Friends, why do our churches not have an impact in our homes or in our communities? I'm not talking globally. I'm talking about in your home. Why does the church not have an impact in our homes and in our community? Because most people that claim to be Christian live in soil two and soil three. They're going to stand on the word as long as it's telling them not to judge anybody or telling them that God loves them. But as soon as it says you and I need to be confrontational about this or that or we need not to yield to this or that or maybe some of us ought to tear the TV off of our living room wall and sling it into the street, like we're not going to do any of that. We're suffering for it. Our families are suffering for it. Most people, when you talk about 60 or 70% of our population in this country claiming to be Christian, the only way that can be true is if a vast majority of them are living in Camp 2 or Camp 3. But there's another soil. These two, the, the idea of conflict or convenience and comfort are greater than conversion. That's the fear and the heartbreak. For most of the people that you and I live with that claim the name of Christ, for most of them, the idea of conflict or convenience and comfort outweigh their Christian conversion. And if that is the case, you and I need to remember that something is terribly wrong. 
I don't want to be in conflict with people. Well, being a Christian ain't for you. You're behind enemy lines. And some of you work even further beyond. And so you and I need to understand that these things are going to come. The idea of convenience can outweigh conversion. That's the care of the world or comfort. I told you a couple weeks ago, and I would remind you again and again and again, we are far closer to Solomon than we are John the Baptist. But look at verse 23, because that's where the story ends. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit. Man, amen. He, she indeed bears fruit. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. And I love the idea that the Lord said there's going to be different variations there. Certain points in your life, you may be bearing fruit times 100. At other times, it might be 30. At sometimes, it might just be five. Right? Like, I am broken, needy, I need some help, whatever else, but that there's still Christian fruit being born out in your life. This reminds me of the parable of the talents, too. So reminds me of that parable. Do you remember? Leader goes away, servants are given one talent apiece. As they go, what happens? One invests it, increases it tenfold. One invests it, increases it fivefold. The third one buries it. And when the master comes back, they are called to give an account. The one that invested it gives back his ten. He says, man, faithful, wonderful, great job. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to make you ruler over many. The one with five comes in, and he gets exactly the same encouragement. You've been faithful over little. I'm going to make you ruler over much. The third one comes in. The third one says, I knew you were a hard master. I knew that you, you worked and you would not want me to lose what you had given me. So I buried it. And now I've brought it back to you intact. Here's what you gave me. I give it back to you. And he says, you are a wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put it in the bank, collected a little interest and brought it back to me. What I see from both these passages brought together is simply this. There is no risk in Christian investment. There's no risk. The first person that invests the talent, there's a return. The second person that invests the talent, there is a return. The seed that falls in the soil, the sower actually plants a whole field, 160 or 30, by just doing what it is he's called to do. There is courage in the Christian life. There is no risk. What you pour out for God's service, what you pour out in God's glory, what you give the kingdom of God cannot be lost. We need to stop being scared that the reaction is not going to be what we want. We need to stop acting like you and I can argue someone further out of the kingdom of God by giving a poor answer to a hard question. They're going to come, but if you keep your mouth shut, you'll be 75 and never answered any questions. Or you can be 15, struggle, find an answer, and be ready for the next one. There is tremendous courage in living the life that God has called us to live. But there is zero risk. God promises fruit from what you and I give. That's His promise. It's not yours. It's not your responsibility to create it's not your responsibility. It is your responsibility to do what you're called to do and be faithful. Tremendous courage all over the world. People are living with tremendous courage for the will and, and, and the worth and the glory of God. But there is zero risk. 
if the world takes everything from them, including their life, what they have invested will go on forever. They are untouchable. And so is what God is doing through their life. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you and I are living proof that God's word and God's seed comes back with with, with a yield. Why? Because we're here today. And for the last 2,000 years, there have been very few kingdoms or kings that were um, okay with the church being there. And yet here we are. Our mothers and fathers were burned and killed and thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. And yet here we are. You are living proof that you have nothing to fear. We should never conflate courage with risk. Courageous servants risk nothing. What happens? Ephesians 2, here it is. Let me give it to you this way. Ephesians 2, God tills the heart so that the soil is good. God tills that. That's his job. That's not ours. That's the Holy Spirit's job. People are dead and they are made alive. That's him. What you and I do, though, is we till this corporate soil together. This church is also soil. And so when you and I are here loving and living properly, that soil is tender, it is nutritious, there is water, there is an opportunity to grow, there's a push, there's exhortation. That's what you and I till together. The individual heart is between God and the person. That's why you and I sow everywhere. But it's why you and I take this ground very serious together. Baby Christians here get fed and nourished and loved. That's the way it should be. They can grow and be strong. They can produce fruit. That's the opportunity that you and I get. Ephesians 2 talks about God and the soul. And Ephesians 4 talks about the church. That you and I are to live properly in a way that this is fertile soil. So what kind of harvest should we have? Well, Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to go backward and read a couple of verses to you. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of the people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You see, what kind of harvest are you and I producing? There is judgment required. You and I have to see what's going on and make proper judgments. That's how we help guide people back into what the Word of God actually says. The tree is known by its fruit. You see, I make judgments on my heart in my home, with my loved ones, with my surroundings, with my friends, the leadership, not only my leadership that I give, but the leadership that I'm following. Crazy are we to be when we follow bad leadership. Judgment is required in this life. And so many times that word is just beaten and pummeled falsely. So here's the question, am I bearing fruit? Yes, the answer is always yes. Am I bearing good fruit? Or is my tree bearing bad fruit? Does it model scripture? Does it look like Jesus? I love the, the last sentence of that passage. By your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What is Jesus saying there? He's telling me that my words expose my heart. 
so that if my words are godly and good, if that's the fruit my life is producing, encouraging, strengthening, trustworthy, honorable, loving, kind, if these are the things that are coming out, then the fruit in me, the seed in me is good. But if it's negative, nasty, gossip, lying, deception, then that seed within me is bad. And so we can see God, uh, we can see how God is in that person's life by the words that they say on repeat. And listen to me, you cannot uh, miss the small moments, you can't miss the little details. Because a lot of times people can say a lot of good things for a really long time. It's when the little thing comes up and you say, ooh, that's not good. Right? It's, it's, the, it's the 99th sentence out of 100. And you're like, ooh, there's something there. It's exposing my heart. The assurance of salvation is for those that bear Christian fruit. How can you and I have assurance of our salvation? Because we bear Christian fruit. When you get around Christian people, the Holy Spirit brings about this feeling of joy and peace and contentment. When nobody else knows what's going on, your words and your thoughts and your heart sound like a Christian's should. They sound like Jesus'. Assurance of salvation is for you and for anybody that deals in that realm. Assurance of salvation is not for those that have never borne any Christian fruit. Actually, it's an extra layer of condemnation because they think they're okay. That they never look like Jesus. They don't care to, to, to spread the gospel. They don't care to be a part of the things he says to be a part of. And when you, look at, you and I look at people like that, we have to gently, sometimes they're in your own family. Sometimes they're in the church next door. God help us, some of them are in our church. If there's no Christian fruit, there should be no assurance. So why is everything so confusing? Well, our enemy is a counterfeiter. Chapter 13, again, last couple verses. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. See, our enemy is a counterfeiter. He's not a creator. He counterfeits all the good things that God has for you and I, including the church. That's why one of the pieces of living the church properly is you and I have to take seriously how God says we are to deal with one another, to love each other enough to have hard conversations, to love each other enough to call each other to live according to Scripture. See, this passage talks about the wheat and the weeds. As stewards of the church, you and I recognize action and we deal with it. As God alone, as the Lord of the church, he will one day reveal intent. We can't do that. All we have are the actions to go on. As stewards of the church, we love in discipline. Like a father and a mother love their children. We love in discipline. As the Lord of the church, he loves in judgment. It would not be loving to leave the wicked with the righteous for all eternity. 
it would be insulting not only to the church, it would be insulting to God himself. You see, the Lord of the church loves in judgment. That's why even when he casts out judgment, even when he gives the, the, the penalty, the punishment, it is still in love. It's not against his character. As stewards of the church, we confine for purity, meaning you and I guard this for purity. You guard your home and you guard your church. If you don't guard those two things, you might as well just give up because eventually you're going to lose them both. We guard, we love, we care, we see actions, we diagnose them, we work through them. We try to make our lives and the lives of those in our family and those in our church match what Scripture says because that's where there's peace. But as the Lord of the church, He condemns for eternity. So there are admonitions in the Christian life. You and I can't take God's job, but we do need to deal with the soil and the seed and the fruit that's being produced. We do have to open our eyes to those things and address them and cultivate them and, and sometimes prune some things water and nourish and love and care so that we see others after us also produce Christian fruit. But what are the admonitions that God would give to you and I? 1 Peter 4, 17, as Justin and Sidney come today, would say this, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. For far too long, hypocrisy has been the call of most churches. And listen, I'm not one that beats up the church in general because it's fun. I don't do that. It's the bride of Christ. Better off to keep your mouth shut than to throw haymakers, right? If it was my bride you were talking about, we would have issues. So I don't want to do that to Jesus' bride. But when you can uh, bring about a testimony of hypocrisy within churches, you and I understand what's going on. This verse is not being applied. Some people are going to make excuses anyway. We should not give them any reason to do that. And you standing on truth is not an excuse for them to turn away from the God of love. That's just who they're going to be. But when there are really accusations of hypocrisy or sin that can be leveled at a church and they're true, then you and I know this passage has not been applied. Judgment is to begin here first. It begins in my heart first, and then it comes out to my family and my church and my community. Colossians 1.10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit is not just watching people get saved. Bearing fruit is what happens in your life when you look more like Jesus. Bearing fruit is when you're encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ. Bearing fruit is when you're living out the mission like Noah, when you have no converts. It's not just the same as watching people get saved. It's all of it. Is the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in your life? Is He making you look more Jesus than He is at work? Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. At the end of that verse, it goes on to say there is no law written against those things. They are so good and so pure, there's no law that can be written against them. Is that the life you and I are pouring out? Does it look like that at all? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Wouldn't you just love to be around 15 people that showed those things all the time? Would your life not get better? Would your home not get better? It's glorious. John 15, 5 says this, Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Friends, as you stand this morning and we get ready to sing, you need something, you come. Listen, if you and I are abiding in Christ, there will be fruit. There will be. There has to be. Either he is a liar or something is wrong with me. Like there's no other option. Claim to be Christian. You're listening to hard sermons. We're going through the word of God. I'm begging you to understand your life should be different. You should be bearing fruit. Some seasons it'll be like a glorious orchard. And that fruit of yours will be used to nourish other people. It will, it will drop to the ground. It will create new product. It will be just an amazing thing. And sometimes it's just nothing more than an inner peace in a chaotic situation between you and your Lord. But it's still fruit. If you need something, you come this morning. If you want to pray or talk to someone after service, I'm always here. This is very important, right? Because as the days get hard, this matters more. There will be more fruit as the world continues to grab the soil and churn it up real good. There will be more fruit to be had. More Christian fruit will come about. Why? Because people will see this world is empty, broken, and poor, and it has nothing for me. And there you and I are feeding, loving, and caring. As they sing, you sing or you come. Here is where I